Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Bridge Bank. Today is Wednesday, September 30th. America's blood pressure is up, Disney theme park jobs are down, and we're focused on one of Silicon Valley's most controversial companies. Earlier today, Palantir Technologies went public on the New York Stock Exchange. It did so via a direct listing rather than an IPO, but that's not even the interesting part, except to finance nerds. Instead, it's because Palantir has long been known as secretive and controversial, and to be honest, unique within a tech industry known for copycatism. Palantir was created in 2003 to apply information technology to anti-terrorism campaigns by a group of co-founders who included current CEO Alex Karp, current venture capitalist Joe Lonsdale, and Peter Thiel, the well-known Facebook director and informal advisor to President Trump. Palantir also pledged to help secure people's data from their own governments, kind of a philosophy of, we'll help them find you, but only if you've done something really bad. As Alex Karp recently told Axios on HBO, if the US government targets somebody with a drone strike, chances are that Palantir software was used somewhere along the way. Palantir has since evolved into work with U.S. government entities like ICE, which obviously doesn't make it too popular in large swaths of liberal Silicon Valley. It also works with governments of foreign allies and a growing number of businesses, which now represent around half of its revenue. Oh, and speaking of revenue and balance sheets, Palantir is unprofitable, despite a massive valuation and a long time in business. So we want to dig into what Palantir is and what it isn't, with company co-founder Joe Lonsdale, who no longer works at Palantir, but who continues to be paid a consulting fee and who holds a whole lot of Palantir stock. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Joe Lonsdale, a co-founder of Palantir Technologies, also a venture capitalist who runs 8VC. So Joe, what was kind of the mission when you helped found Palantir? basic idea was to take a really competent technology culture that had gotten way ahead of Washington, D.C., and to apply it to solve the most important problems going on at the time, which was basically to help bring together data to solve problems and stop terrorism, stop attacks while protecting civil liberties. The protecting civil liberties, you obviously well know kind of some of the criticism of Palantir, which is this idea that it has gone from, as you say, kind of protecting U.S. troops, say, overseas to enabling, whether it be ICE or NSA, to kind of spy to a certain extent on Americans. How do you respond to that? Because there does seem to be a kind of a fundamental mission creep. Well, if you look at what we're doing, we're helping augment the human mind to act on data and to act on data they're allowed to act on. And to me, it's really ironic that it's seen as problematic that way, because the whole idea was, let's build it in such a way that people are only ever allowed to see and share what they're allowed to see and share. And so there's auditorial, so you can watch the watchers. And so rather than like the show 24, where Jack Bauer goes and just does whatever he wants against the bad guy, let's have a system in place that only lets them use the data legally, only the way that they're allowed to. And that's the whole point is Palantir is a privacy engine that lets you only see what the rules say you're allowed to see. How does Palantir protect that data from Palantir? Basically set up there and it's very clear how Palantir works where whoever's in charge can always see who's accessing what. So, I mean, I suppose it is possible that if the people using it are doing so in a way that's hidden from Palantir, then everyone in charge all the way up to the top could be involved in something they're not supposed to be doing. That is the power they have. However, it's designed in such a way it's very hard for any small groups to get away with anything they're not supposed to do because people at the top do have full control and can see what happened and what was accessed. Isn't that one of the concerns, though, when you've got a company 
that's collecting and analyzing and kind of merging so much data that even though whether it be ICE or the NSA or some corporate customer doesn't have access, there is somebody who has access and it does open the possibility of there being a bad actor somewhere. Well, I think it makes it a lot harder to have a bad actor if you have information infrastructure that's tracking everything and tracking exactly how it's used. And you know, the whole idea is Palantir itself doesn't have access to all the data that other people are using Palantir to work on. So it's not like Palantir sitting in the middle is able to see everything. Palantir almost always, when I read a story about them, it's referred to as the secretive Silicon Valley technology company. I know this bothers me a lot. And you know what it is? Palantir's culture is really good at getting the most talented engineers and technologists in the world and solving really hard problems and these really cool missions that go on with their customers to work on it. Palantir does not have very sophisticated and built out PR group. In fact, the PR strategy seems to be to avoid talking to the press. I guess that makes it secretive, but it's funny because if you go to their site, they explain how the technology works. They explain what it does. It's really complicated. Building information infrastructure is not easy. It's not complicated. Most of us don't understand it. So I think rather than secretive is that it's doing something that is just relatively esoteric to most people. Alex Karp did an interview uh, with my colleague, Mike Allen, for our HBO show uh, about a month or two ago. And he talked about how even within his own family, certain things that Palantir has decided to do have been controversial. For you, are there things, are there customers, are there clients that has taken on that you think, man, if I was in charge, we wouldn't have done that? It's an interesting question. You know, actually, I don't have full information on exactly how it's working with certain countries in the Middle East. I tend to be very pro enforcing the laws in the US, whatever they are, and working with our allies. I know Palantir works with 30 to 40, I guess over 35 countries, probably over 40 at this point. I'm very aligned with Palantir. Don't work with China, don't work with Russia, don't work with Iran, et cetera, obvious ones. Some other allies in the Middle East, I don't know exactly how they're using it. I always get a little bit of a queasy feeling myself, exactly what people do in certain countries there where my values are not aligned with theirs. I know Palantir has a strong set of principles internally, but I'm actually not privy to those conversations. And so I, I can't say for sure that I agree with every choice they've made there. But in general, I support what Palantir has done. I'm really proud of all these things they've done. Does that include ICE? And I guess I asked the question because the company originally was kind of founded at the time of the Iraq war. And as you said, was kind of an anti-terrorism thing. In part, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, that part of its technology is being used by ICE not to identify violent criminals, but to identify people whose sole crime is crossing a border, but not violence. Well, you know, in general, the company has to make a choice. Is it going to support U.S. laws or not? You know, I was actually, when I first started that we joked, maybe we shouldn't be helping the IRS, depending on different people have different views morally of that. And of course, it does help the IRS as well. I think in general, helping the government do what it does better is the right thing to do. I personally am very against some of our immigration laws. That said, my understanding is the Obama administration worked with Palantir with ICE, and they actually ended up stopping a lot of child traffickers and caught a lot of child traffickers thanks to their works. Joe, your day job now is being a venture capitalist, identifying new tech companies in which to invest. Do you see baby Palantirs coming up from behind it? Because from my perspective on the outside, I don't seem to see much. You've got a lot of big data companies, but not ones that are aiming at the same sorts of markets Palantir is? That's a really good question. And it actually gets to the heart of why it's such a special company. It's actually something very similar to what we did with Adapark, is we took a bunch of really talented people and we worked on a problem that would take four, five, six, seven years to really solve properly. This is a very, very hard problem to take these things that used to be services and to make them into products. There's $100 billion a year spent on these types of services. Everyone around the world does that. Nobody else has been able to turn as many of them into products. Such a hard technical problem. So no, you have to have somebody else spend hundreds of millions of dollars with an equity-driven team of the very top talent to be able to do what Palantir does. And I have not seen people able to do that yet. Final question, which is kind of a stock question, I guess. 
The other thing that surprised outside of the bottom line, top line in the S1 was the control. And this kind of unusual control structure, the three of your fellow co-founders, whereby Jim Cramer called it borderline obnoxious, most egregious since we work. Give me the argument for why three people should effectively get to control Palantir indefinitely, even if they sell off their stock. You know, if it was up to me, I would have preferred maybe they can only sell half their stock versus this much of their stocks. So I think there's something there. But that said, I do feel better knowing this company is in the hands of Peter, Alex, and Stefan. They're three very different people and they have very strong principles and values. And I'm very bullish on Palantir given they've taken on that responsibility. Because what this really says is they're saying, we are taking on this responsibility. You can tie this to us, put this on us, how this company does. And that's a really good thing for the company. Those three are, are willing to take that on. Joe Lonsdale, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Welcome back. What we're watching today is fallout from last night's utter debacle of a debate. To be sure, a lot of that conversation will be deserved condemnation of President Trump's failure not only to refute white supremacy, but his tacit endorsement of it. But perhaps even more problematic was a moment that came at the end, with Trump all but announcing he won't accept the election results, which he's predetermined to be fraudulent. Now, stocks are up in early trading today, in part thanks to renewed stimulus talks, but this is setting up not just as a political and constitutional crisis, but an economic one. Not only would such uncertainty make it harder for businesses to plan, it creates the conditions for the sort of widespread chaos and violence that America hasn't experienced in any of our lifetimes. I really can't quite believe I'm saying those words, specifically violence, but it's not hyperbole. Today, we are also watching one of the pandemic era's largest layoff announcements. This one comes from Disney, which said it'll cut upwards of 28,000 jobs, mostly at its theme parks, cruise lines, and retail units. It's a stark reminder of how major parts of the economy remain in crisis. Oh, and quickly speaking of cruise lines, Axios's Jonathan Swan reports that CDC Director Robert Redfield was overruled yesterday in the Situation Room when he pushed to extend a so-called no-sale order for passenger cruises into next February. Instead, it'll expire in a few hours. And finally today, some shameless self-promotion as Axios announced that it's expanding into local reporting. Our four launch cities will be Denver, Des Moines, Minneapolis-St. Paul, and Tampa-St. Petersburg. You can get more info and sign up at axios.com backslash local. And we're done. Big thanks for listening and to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great national chewing gum day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.